I want to take part of that second reading as my text this morning from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1183. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Just three verses. Let's take a look at that again. This is the last time Paul will be in prison. He had been in prison many times before. Of imprisonments of varying length. One might have thought that that was a ministerial waste of time, uh, but um, it was very powerful to see how he carried on in the midst of what he might have, what we might have thought of as a waste of time. Ever get upset about somebody wasting your time? <laughs> Maybe it's just a test, an opportunity for you to develop patience in a way. I'm speaking from experience in a way that uh, you hadn't developed it yet. But this is the last time he'll be in prison, and he's facing an imminent death. And so he writes, chapter 4, and beginning at verse 6, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have Finish the race, I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This morning I want to talk about faith's way and faith's reward. Faith's way and faith's reward. Now, faith's way, simply put, is faithfulness. That is to say that the byproduct of a true faith is faithfulness. It's not just words. It's doing. It's, it's, it's faithfulness. It's, it's words and, and actions that, uh, that back it up and characterize it. In fact, faithful people are very Influential because the things that they say are the things that they live. It was Donald Miller who said famously in his book, Blue Like Jazz, what I believe is not what I say. What I believe is what I do. And so faith is doing, and faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. And this is what the faithful look back on when they come to the end of their life. The faithful look back on a life of faithfulness. And Paul is at the end of his life. His death was imminent. One thing that we might um, mention is that this is something that comes to us all. When was the last time you thought about your death? Maybe if you're older, you, you think about it more frequently than... When I was younger, I didn't think about it at all. I don't know. Is that, was, I, was that a strange? Is that a strange thing? When you get older, maybe you think about it a little bit more. I think maybe in generations past, younger people thought about it a little bit more because they were f faced with it more often, and people, they, uh, people died more frequently. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, we talk about Jesus 
Uh, he, he lived to be approximately in his mid-30s. That was life expectancy in the first century. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus lived a f an average life as it, as, it, uh, as it relates to life expectancy. 35, that's about all you get. And I remember one doctor who was commenting on a Netflix special that I watched some time ago called Surviving Death. And he, the doctor said, most people don't think about death until they're forced to. And that rang true. That's why I wrote it down. It was Euripides, the Greek, ancient Greek playwright who said, death is a debt we all must pay. I wrote that down too. Why? It's obvious that that's true. You're all going to die. And so am I. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2, Solomon writes, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take it to heart. Now, how do I live my life in light of the fact that death is something that will come? I mean, we're very engaged in our lives right now. And those of us, uh, the, the more responsible of us, are very fastidious about, you know, making sure that, uh, that the uh, retirement plan is all in, in order. But who plans for after retirement? <laughs> Not too many. And so Paul's at the end of his life. Notice again, verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, he says, and the time of my departure has come. And so, as we mentioned, Paul is in prison for the last time. He's in prison. It's mentioned a couple of times in this letter itself. In chapter 1 and verse 8, he says to Timothy, his protege, who he left serving more or less what we would call as a bishop uh, in the city of Ephesus, which is, was located in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey, he said to uh, Timothy, he said, And don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God. Or in chapter 3 and verse 12, he writes to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, this may have been more true in that day than it is in this, in this day and in our culture, um, uh, in fact, that is true. Uh, but uh, I remember a young man saying, well, I want to suffer for the Lord. I said, well, you don't need to seek suffering. Just, just keep on doing the right thing, and suffering will find you. <laughs> right. And so Paul is in prison for the last time, and Paul says that uh, he's being poured out like a drink offering. Now, this is a very interesting expression. Of course, it's a metaphor. He wasn't really a drink offering, but he's, it's like a drink offering. The offering of wine poured out to God at the base of the altar was amongst many sacrifices that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, and the drink offering was a sacrifice. You didn't drink it, you poured it out. It, caught, it was valuable, uh, but you poured it out. It was a libation. Uh, in honor and in an act of worship to God, which appears to be what Paul's point is here. He says, I, am, I, am, I have for many years <laughs> been persecuted and chased down and hunted 
When he wrote to the Galatians, you know, he said, uh, go easy on me because I bear in my body the marks of Christ Jesus, the, the, the scars on his back from the many times that he was beaten with rods and scourged and so forth and an attempt by people in power to dissuade him from preaching the gospel. But now he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm being poured out like a glass of wine at the base of the altar as a sacrifice and as an, as an act of worship to the God that I love more than I love my own life, who I will obey at any cost. And then if there's any question about what he's talking about, he uses this second phrase in the second part of Verse 6, and the time of my departure has come. He's not talking about taking a train somewhere. He's talking about departing this life, in fact, to be with God. And Paul was faithful. Indeed, notice, as he looks back on his life, verses 6 and 7, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Timothy, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so Paul says, uh, I've fought the good fight. We, if you've ever wondered where that phrase came, comes from, it's right here from this first century document. To fight the good fight. Of course, it's a sports analogy. And in Paul's day, the Greeks engaged in these events Pugilism isn't something that was invented with Muhammad Ali. It goes back millennia. I, 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 boxing. My daughter asked me what pugilism was. Boxing. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. He say, I fought the good fight. And, and then uh, he says, and I finished the race. And so another sports analogy about the, the, long, the, the long distance run. And so he likens his life for Christ as a, as a boxing match. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. It's a fight. And if you, if you don't sense that you're in a fight, that's because you're being overcome by the world, the flesh, and the devil. They don't fight you because they got you. <laughs> but if you're trying to live for God, it's a battle. Or a, or a, or a, a, a race, a run, a long-distance run. Any joggers? And I get a couple blocks around and I ask myself, what am I doing? <laughs> it is not pleasant. If ever there was an example of delayed gratification, it's jogging. Right? Because you're doing that for something in the future. Namely, you're trying to get your weight under control or you're trying to feel better and have a better quality of life, etc. And so he likens it to this. It's a, especially the, the, the race is a, is a metaphor for endurance. You keep on going, what? Until you cross the finish line. And that's what he's saying here. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He uses the same uh, language in, when he wrote to the Corinthians. And maybe a little more detail, just to, so you know what he's thinking. 1 Corinthians 9, and beginning at verse 24, he says, Do you not know that 
in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. And so run that you may obtain it. Don't just run, run to win. He's talking about the spiritual life. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a Stephanus, the crown from which we get the boy's name Stephen or the girl's name Stephanie. It means crown in Greek. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath you know, that goes on the head that's given by the judge at the end of the race, you win. You're the one. Excellent. Bravo. <laughs> and Paul says, and so do not, do not run aimlessly. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do, we live, we run our race and fight our fight for an imperishable crown. One that lasts forever. And so he says, so I do not run aimlessly as, without a goal. Like, where are you going? I don't know. I do not run aimlessly. And I do not box as one who beats the air. I mean to make contact. Uppercut. Right cross. Left hook. Boom. I'm not aiming at the air. I mean to knock this guy down. And if I knock him down and knock him out, I don't have to win by points. I automatically win. And so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after, he says as a preacher, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so Paul fought the good fight and he finished the race. And he says, I have kept the faith. As he looks back, he says, I, I have been faithful. I'm not perfect. All you have to do is read the seventh chapter of Romans. Paul is very, very transparent there. He wasn't a perfect person. None of us are. God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for faithfulness. When you blow it, you confess it to him and you confess it to others to whatever extent that's required. And then you move on. You, 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 you know where the goal is. And you're heading for it. That's what faithfulness is. It starts with a heart's desire and then actions that are an expression of that heart's desire. When I think about Paul's life, I was thinking about this great quote. I was talking to somebody who works at the uh, Star of Hope downtown. And I quoted Gregory Boyle to him. But Gregory Boyle in his great book, Tattoos on the Heart, Gregory Boyle said, the slow work of God gets done when we're faithful. The slow work of God gets done when we're faithful. You just keep going hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. You just keep on pursuing God and what he's called you to do. That's faithfulness. And when you get to the end of your life, you look back and you say, all right, praise God, and God has been good, and God has delivered me, and God 
has corrected me and, and so on, and that's my life. And that's what Paul was doing. So that's faith's way, the way of faithfulness. And then faith's reward. Notice again, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown or the, the stephanos, the crown, the wreath, the garland of righteousness, which the Lord, that's code language for Jesus, which the Lord, the righteous judge, the one who will come again to judge both the living and the dead. Paul, Peter said it in Acts chapter 10. Paul says it here in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. That's who he's referring to. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, it's not just about me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Faith's reward signifies that the way of faith has ended. He is at the end. Indeed, the winner of the wreath, the Stephanos and the games, is awarded the wreath at the end of the event, the end of the race, the end of the match. And so that's what Paul is talking about. He's come to his end. We sang about it. And on that day when my faith is, or when my health is failing, or whatever it was that we sang, right? I'll still praise you. That day is coming. So for some of us, it's very close. For others of you, it seems maybe quite far away. But you'll get there. And Paul says that faith's reward comes from Christ. He's the Lord. He's the righteous judge. We've often talked to you know, talked about, you know, in Revelation 7, it says that Jesus will, will wipe away every tear. And I've commented and said, you know how close you have to get to wipe away someone's tears? <laughs> That's really close. And for Jesus to, to look you in the face and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And metaphorically, I don't know if this is, if this is a actual, literal, but give you a crown. But the point is, is that, he, the, that he's pleased. <laughs> if you love me, keep my commandments. And that apparently is pleasing to the Lord. He tells these parables about the, the owner. And he goes away and he comes back. And then he checks in with his servants. And there's the servant who's, who's good and faithful. Well done thou, good and faithful servant. And so Jesus is the one who gives the reward. And Paul says that all who are faithful receive the reward. Not just him or some special class of people. There'd be so many people whose names you don't, don't even know. But God is so familiar with them because one thing that's characteristic of their life is that they're faithful. <laughs> it's not something that our culture celebrates, but it's something that God celebrates. And so all the faithful will receive the reward, and in particular, to use Paul's uh, language here, all those who have loved Christ's appearing. It's a very interesting expression. 
Uh, it, Peterson in the message that, uh, translates it, everyone eager for his coming. Are you eager for his coming? <laughs> yeah, he's here. <laughs> right. Everyone who's eager for his coming, or in the New English translation, all who have set their affection on his appearing. Indeed, what's interesting is that loving Christ's appearing or being eager for his coming has a powerful spiritual effect. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, we read this. It's always interesting. I always find it fascinating how Peter says what Paul says, and Paul says what Peter says, and what Paul and Peter says is what John says in another spot. But in his style, in his words, in his way, so 1 John chapter 3, and beginning at verse 2, Beloved, key, Johannine language, beloved. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He, the Lord, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him, <laughs> that He's coming, <laughs> And this will happen when he comes. I will be like him because I will see him as he truly is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so knowing that he is coming back and longing for his coming back has this pure, spiritual purifying effect on the one whose disposition is such as that. Notwithstanding all our worldly achievements, according to Jesus, there are really only two things that God is looking for, namely goodness and faithfulness. And seemingly with God, nothing else really matters. And if that's the case, then I'm guessing there are really only two pertinent questions. Are you good? And are you faithful? Indeed, today's text from 2 Timothy chapter 4 isn't a text for somebody else. It's a text for me, and it's a text for you, if you have ears to hear. Amen? Face way and face reward. Let us pray. Many times, Heavenly Father, Jesus talked about the great reversal, the great reversal. Those who exalt themselves shall be abased, and those who abase themselves shall be exalted. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That has to relate to this, that the good and the faithful may not be celebrated in this world, but they will be celebrated in the world to come. And not only celebrated, but celebrated everlastingly. Because as Max Licato said, though we, should we live to be nine or ninety, life is short and the kingdom of God lasts forever. So help us, Lord, to do something that may seem so counterintuitive, and that is to see all things the way you see them, because that's the way things really are. Someday that will be obvious to all of us, and either we'll be on the right side of it or the wrong side of it. This is the time of testing. This is the time the message is presented. This is the time we get to choose between the light and the darkness, 
the world and you. And so help us to make the right choice. It's the happiest choice. It's the blessed choice. Help us to do it in Jesus' name.